So I'm a scientist. And I'm not, but I'm curious about science. She asks a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. And it's always fun for me to explain complex science in understandable ways. So So we we made made a podcast. podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome back to So I Married a Scientist. I'm Corey. And I'm Mel. How you doing, Mel? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. What do you have for me this week? Well, as you probably can't have missed, uh, climate change is a huge hot button topic. You sure? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of folks out there saying different things, all the way from, uh, you know, the world's going to end tomorrow kind of a feel to climate change is a total hoax. I mean, that's a pretty big divergence. Yep. I understand scientists have a near unanimous consensus, so I've heard, from the pro-climate change. Well, they're not pro-climate change. That would be a misnomer. They're definitely <laughs> we don't not, want climate change. No. We just believe in it. The pro-climate change belief camp that scientists are in total basic total agreement that climate change is real. Yep. So I guess... Overwhelming. What, Overwhelming support. support. For support. It being real. Okay. Yep. So I guess what a lot of people contest is not whether it's real, but whether it's human made. Correct. Okay. So I want to get your take. First yeah. of all, as a scientist, what do you think about this issue? Yeah. So I definitely believe that climate change is real. I think there's overwhelming consensus from a scientific perspective that supports that hypothesis. I think it's also very apparent that There is a human element driving the increase in global temperature changes and climate. Even if you could argue that there would be natural variation anyway, which is very true. There's been natural variation throughout the history of the Earth. The acceleration that we've seen since the Industrial Revolution is not lining up with the rates before the Industrial Revolution. So... If you look at that element, I think it's very apparent, to me at least, and to much of the scientific community, that there is a human element. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what climate change is and isn't. On which side? Both sides. Both sides. (laughs) Yeah. Whoa, bold statement. I think the hoax crowd misses a lot of things and is given kind of cherry-picked data to support the fact that CO2 levels have been higher historically than they are now. There is some element of truth to what they're cherry picking. Problem is they're leaving out the fact that when CO2 levels were that high, humans didn't exist. So it's not, it's potentially not a habitable climate for humans to live in, which is part of the problem. And I think some of the pro climate change crowd, even though that sounds like we're in support of climate change being a good thing, that crowd tends to over sensationalize things a little bit and make it about kind of the the smaller the earth is burning now kind of issues rather than broadening it to bring in the climate change denier crowd Whoa. and make it a little bit more appealing. So I think the overarching response to climate change deniers is you're stupid, not here let me help you explain why this is an issue and why there's a human element. One of the worst things you can do when you're disagreeing with someone and trying to get them on your side is calling them names yep. and yep. and hyperbolizing your case. 
Right. right? So when's the last, if you can think about when's the last time you changed your mind about something after someone called you stupid, it really, you know, yeah. usually you just batten down the hatches and dig your trench deeper. Right. Oh, you think I'm stupid? Well, bleh, let me yeah. show you, you know, so that's, that's not helpful for anybody. So first of all, second of all, when you sensationalize your case for anything, uh, what you do is you, you open yourself up to, to holes in your argument because you're exaggerating data and it gives people who want to disagree with you an opportunity to be proven right. So it's incredibly dangerous if you're trying to advocate for a cause to blow it out of proportion or sensationalize it. So right. it might be the case that climate change is very real and we need to take immediate action. But if we exaggerate, we are not doing the cause any favors. Right. Right. All you have to do is give them one element of mistruth to kind of focus on and then they will not believe the full extent of your argument. Yeah. So, okay. So climate change deniers, you said an interesting statement that I didn't expect you to say. You said there's an element of truth in what climate change deniers have to say. Yeah. So one of the key arguments against human driven climate change is that there have been periods of earth history where CO2 levels have been astronomically higher than they are right now. But you said that was before people came right. around? So that's 500 million years ago. Okay. And, you know, there have been periods. Basically, it, go, it rises and falls due See. to natural occurrences. Yeah. And the problem with that is that humans have only been around for 2 million years. And it's been fairly stable within, you know, a couple hundred ppm between parts per million parts per million yes uh between you know when humans first evolved and the present day okay so, so before before the industrial revolution which was in the 1800s which was in the late 1800s uh -huh. humans hadn't been in the past 800,000 years there haven't been cases of the co2 levels being above 300 ppm and now we're at almost 400 and i think we're actually above 400 ppm in present day so we're significantly higher yeah, that's what NASA says, than the natural I? cycle of when humans have been alive. Okay. So, so let's talk about CO2 for a sec. Sure. Um, I recently heard an interesting story that relates to CO2. Have you ever heard about the Biosphere 2 experiment? No. Okay. So this was a group of people in the 90s who were not really scientists as far as I can tell. Uh, so this kind of goes to show what happens when you try to do scientific experiments and don't involve scientists or people who know what they're doing. This group of people in the 90s built uh, this thing in Arizona called the Biosphere 2. That's what they call it because okay. Biosphere 1 is Earth. So the okay. Biosphere 2. So it's this massive complex, like bigger than a shopping mall, that was hermetically sealed, like sealed to the outside world. And inside of it, there's all these uh, little tiny ecosystems. So there's a little rainforest and a little desert and a little ocean. And this whole thing was supposed to be this self-contained ecosystem in order to measure, like, can humans build a thing that can survive if, like, the Earth dies or we need to go to Mars and start a new colony or whatever. Okay. Really so interesting. So, like, survival shelter on steroids. Yes. Okay. Massively funded survival shelter. Got it. And what they did was they took eight people, eight volunteers, and they locked them in there for two years to see if they could survive. And okay. they almost died, all of them, because... The CO2 levels got too high. They, they thought that the rainforest and the plants in the biosphere would, would create enough oxygen, but they didn't. And they couldn't figure out the, what was happening to the oxygen because the oxygen levels were way lower than they should have been. Okay. Come to find out that the concrete that the whole thing was built out of, uh, we didn't know yet that the concrete somehow 
did something with oxygen. Do you know? Can you? Well, concrete is one of the biggest emitters of CO2. It emitted CO2. Yeah. Okay. So big problem. So the crew, you know, about halfway in started noticing they felt lethargic, unable to concentrate, could barely climb stairs without, you know, (laughs) having to take a break. So the crew didn't have any energy to work, so they couldn't eat. So then they ended up eating their own seed stores and they literally barely made it out alive. Uh, They had to actually pump oxygen into the biosphere about six months before the experiment ended, just so that these folks wouldn't die. So it's interesting because I think it's one of the only accidental human experiments where we've put humans for long term in a CO2 rich environment, carbon dioxide rich environment, low oxygen, and just we could see actually what happened to them. Yeah. Uh, they pumped in oxygen, but they didn't remove CO2. Right. Yeah, that's not going to work. Right. So they, again, like this would be a miserable, miserable two years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting story though? Like, like who, so again, apparently they repeated the experiment later and they fixed the CO2 problem with the concrete by sealing it. And then they put someone in there who like actually knew how to farm properly and they mm. did fine. Nobody, nobody died. Oh, okay. So, so that's good news. That's there was a good end. Good outcome. At least yeah, no, no loss of life. If you Google biosphere too, you can see pictures of this. It's like totally incredible. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So CO2. Yeah. Is carbon dioxide. It's carbon dioxide. It's what we breathe out. We breathe out. out. Yeah. Okay. And the reason why CO2 is toxic to us at certain concentrations is because as CO2 levels rise, we breathe in too much CO2 from the atmosphere and our red blood cells can't give up their CO2 that they're carrying back to the lungs because there's not enough gradient. So we, we need enough, we need enough difference between the concentration in our blood and the concentration in the air to allow the CO2 to go from our blood to the air. Why does it get in our blood in the first place? Because CO2 is a byproduct of cellular respiration and energy generation. So we breathe in oxygen. We go through metabolic processes. Those metabolic processes create CO2. The oxygen gets dropped off at the cells. The red blood cells pick up CO2, bring the CO2 back to the lungs, and then we're supposed to breathe it out. So high CO2 doesn't just mean like you suffocate or like kind of like being at high altitude, you can't quite get enough oxygen. Like your cellular function will actually stop working. Yeah. So it's basically like you're not able to breathe in oxygen because your red blood cells can't get rid of the CO2 that they're carrying to take on oxygen. So you effectively, like the reason why you pass out is because you effectively can't breathe anymore. Your whole body can't breathe. Yeah. You're breathing, but the... CO2 for oxygen exchange isn't happening. Okay, so it is incredibly concerning that CO2 levels are rising. Can we say that definitively? Well, yes, but we don't get to the point, like even at the highest level it's ever been, it's not at like a truly toxic, toxic level. Okay. It just would make you really tired and drowsy. Okay, so you said right now on the earth, our CO2 levels are 400 Just above 400 400, okay. To give you an example of how high they would have to be in order to start inhibiting our function in biosphere two, the CO2 levels got to 4,000 PPM. Yeah. And that's about the level that it was 500 million years ago. Okay. Interesting. Before humans were. It's actually funny that they weren't able to survive. It's not funny, but that they weren't able to thrive in that environment because that's like the worst case scenario for CO2 levels. But that doesn't, you know, that's independent of the climate aspect. So like 
the reason why it's so bad that they're that high is because once you get up to about 5,000 ppm, you start having really severe symptoms. Below 5,000 ppm, you have like headaches and weakness and tiredness and drowsiness, drowsiness which aren't good, right. um, but you can still survive. You're not going to die. Yeah. Right. Um, the like occupational exposure limit, so like workplace safety, is 5,000 ppm. That's like the threshold that OSHA says, hey, above this, we can't have people operating um, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah. So climate change, there's overwhelming evidence that climate change is happening. Yep. And there is a lot of evidence to the point of convincing scientists that humans are accelerating it. We're accelerating the rate of change and making it go above what we would have expected the natural cycle to be for this time period. So if humans stopped driving cars and doing all the things, you know, using fossil fuels and doing all the things that are supposed to contribute to climate change right now, would climate change stop? Not immediately. But it, would we would we stop the rate of acceleration? Not necessarily. Wow. Okay. So, so it would so continue to rise for a while because we've put so many of those greenhouse gases into the air that it's not going to just like automatically plateau the second we stop using all of it. Yeah. It's going to continue to rise until it, you know, plateaus and then comes back down. Okay. So on a scale of one to 10, I'm trying to get a sense of, yeah. on a scale of one to 10, if 10 is humans are causing all of climate change and one is human or humans are causing a very nominal amount of climate change, mm -hmm. how much are we actually causing? I think that's really hard to quantify. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the climate is going to change whether humans are around or not. We know that because throughout Earth history, climate has changed. CO2 levels have changed. There are volcanic eruptions. There are a lot of natural causes Asteroids. To, of climate change. We've had mass extinctions in the past, yeah, like the dinosaurs, These, these are example. not, you know, every We've had mass ages. extinction is not human-driven because yeah. we haven't been around. We've had ice um, ages in the past. Right. We've had global warming in the past. Correct. Okay. Oh man, we're going to make some people mad. This but <laughs> the the CO2 that we've pumped into the atmosphere through fossil fuels and since the industrial revolution has created a greenhouse effect. And the problem is that CO2 just persists in the environment for a really long time. So the stuff that we've pumped out in the last 100 plus years is going to stick around for thousands of years. Like you can't get that back unless you create a technology that reverses the process or sequesters it or does something like that. How does the earth naturally deal with CO2? Yeah. So there are a couple of really big CO2 sinks. So the ocean is one of them. The ocean? The ocean is one of them. Okay. Yeah. So the ocean is believed to have absorbed about a third of all the CO2 that's been human generated since the industrial revolution. Wow. How so, does it do it? Yeah. So it basically just uptakes CO2 from the air by CO2 absorption. So the water in the ocean can absorb and dissolve a certain amount of CO2. So it's like carbonated water, but a natural occurrence of carbonated water. So the water itself like, like acts like a sponge to the CO2? More or less, yeah. So what? it just kind of absorbs it. Um, and that happens anywhere that air meets water. Waves tend to make this a little bit easier to do, which is why the ocean is a better sink than other bodies of water. The issue is as the ocean temperature rises, 
the ability for it to dissolve CO2 goes down. Oh, no. So if you've ever had like a soda and it's heated up, it, it's a lot more fizzy when it's warm than when it's cold. So it because, gives off the bubbles. Right. Because when it warms up, it has a much less capacity to absorb the CO2. So oh, no. as ocean temperatures rise, its ability to serve as a sink goes down. Okay, so the greenhouse effect, so greenhouse gases like CO2 and like what other types of greenhouse gases? Methane and Methane. similar things, yeah. Yeah. Those go into the atmosphere, make a denser atmosphere that traps more heat. Yep, right? like a greenhouse. Like a greenhouse. And that trapping more heat makes globally the average temperature rise right. artificially. It's gone up about two degrees since the Industrial Revolution. About two degrees, okay. And then that causes the ocean temperature to rise, Mm -hmm. which means the ocean can't absorb as much CO2. Right. So not only are we putting more harmful gases into the atmosphere, but we're decreasing our ability to get rid of those gases. Right. And the ocean at that point, once it flips, the ocean becomes a source of CO2, not a sequesterer of CO2. What do you mean once it flips? Like once the ocean temperature gets to a certain point, it's going to start off-gassing CO2 rather than collecting (laughs) CO2. Oh, no. Okay, so we're not even, and we haven't even gotten to talking about like biodiversity right. or the ocean dying. Yeah, so like coral reefs and all that kind of stuff are very sensitive to ocean temperature changes as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like a, a completely whole other conversation. conversation. We're just talking about gases right now. Yep. Okay, so wow. So this is like, so it's kind of like an exponential curve. When, <laughs> when I was growing up, my dad used to give us life lessons a lot, and he would always, always like about eight times out of ten, grab a piece of paper and be like, you know, this is like an exponential curve. And he would draw an exponential curve. So we still tease him to this day that, you know, everything can be explained in life with an exponential curve. And you know what I'm talking about? Like it starts flat and it starts going up a little bit and then it goes up a whole lot. So it sounds like what we're describing is that. Yeah. So we've definitely reached the point where our oceans are no longer taking up CO2 as much as they used to. So we have data on that where in the 1990s, they started tracking it and the ability for the oceans to take up CO2 that we're generating is much reduced. We're also beyond the capacity of how much trees and algae and all the other sources of CO2 to oxygen conversion can keep up, especially as we clear cut forests and all that kind of stuff. Or as the Amazon burns down. Right. So all of these factors are definitely contributing, but the net sum is that the earth is not capable of absorbing as much CO2 as it used to uh, be capable of. And that's going to make the rate of change even worse over time. That's what you mean by acceleration. I see. Yep. So as, as far as like sequestering CO2, so the oceans do it and then rainforest forests in general, right? And, but mostly rainforests, because we talked about our fall foliage episode that trees right. that are tropical do a lot more positive things for the environment than trees that lose their leaves right. half the year. But then you also have like algae and ocean-based plants and, uh, you know, algae blooms and those types of things that also convert CO2 to oxygen as well. So what's the deal with methane? I hear people talk about cows a lot. What's the deal with that? Yeah. So cows have gotten a terrible rap recently in the climate change community. Yeah. Um, People hate cows. Yeah. Cows are, you know, the worst thing ever. (laughs) If you (laughs) listen to current things, some of it's real. Some of it's overblown. Okay. Um, What's the real part? The real part is that they do generate a ton of methane. Okay. And And methane is a greenhouse gas. It is a greenhouse gas. What does it do? So 
Methane is actually worse than CO2 from a heat retention standpoint. Okay, so it traps more heat it into the atmosphere. It traps more heat per unit of volume than CO2 does. So like on a pound by pound, you know, champion scale, methane is about 30 times worse than Ooh. CO2. Okay. Um, and, you know, first of all, it's cow burps, not cow farts. <laughs> so I would just want to correct the record on that. Everyone blames the cows for farting. There is some methane in their farts. It's almost all from their burps, though. Okay. And we just did the microbiome episode. Yeah. It's actually not the cows themselves. It's the it's microbiome. It's the microbiome in their digestive system <laughs> that produces the methane, not the cows. Don't blame the cows. Blame the bugs. The bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. So, but okay. So they do generate a ton of methane okay. on a equivalent standpoint. I've seen it estimated that two cows is roughly equal to one car per year. Oh, wow. But which, that's, that's surprisingly which high. Which is surprisingly high. I think yeah. that, and when you put it into that context, you're like, okay, cows yeah. are actually a big deal. Because yeah. we, you know, have millions and millions of cows. Um, the down, the alternative fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you said there are things that are not true about what people say about cows. Yeah. So the other side of the methane versus CO2 equation is that although methane traps more heat, it doesn't stick around for nearly as long. What happens to it? So it naturally gets sequestered in a different way than CO2. And the net amount of methane in the system is almost always pretty much equal over oh. time. So we don't see it rising. So because there's this turnover, methane is only in the atmosphere for about 10 to 20 years versus thousands of years for CO2. So oh, if wow. we stopped with the cow production, stop with the cows, you guys, <laughs> um, we would see improvement much faster than if we stopped with the CO2 emissions. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So wait. So on a per unit volume scale, methane's yeah. much worse than CO2, but over time, CO2 is much worse than methane because it sticks around for a lot longer. Okay. So would it, if you want to help the environment though, would it be a good idea to lower your beef intake? Yes. That does help. It does contribute. Okay. But it's overblown. Like what percentage from everything you've seen in the media right now, what is your perception of the contribution from cows versus other sources? Well, I hear about cows... I know you're asking me, you're hoping for a very high percentage. I do hear about the problem with cows, but I, what I hear a lot about cows is the, the use of other re important resources like water that are becoming increasingly okay. scarce yeah. and polluted. And sure, there are a lot of right. There's elements a lot of, to it. There's a lot of reasons to lower beef intake. Yep. So, yeah. So, okay. So those, so CO2 and methane are the two most important greenhouse gases well, to pay attention of, to. There are a lot of them, but those are the two that get the most flack. I remember when I was younger, people talked a lot about carb, carbofluorates, the thing in uh, aerosol cans. Chlorofluorocarbons. Chlorofluorocarbons. That's hard to say. Chlorofluoral or chlorofluoral. I'm not going to try that again. Uh, why yeah, CFCs so the, just call them CFCs. CFCs thank you so everyone was talking about the hole in the ozone layer right but then I just saw an article that we've we're like starting to close it again yeah what's the deal with that so CFCs chlorines and bromines specifically so they're also 
yeah, bromine containing elements as well. But CFCs were kind of the ones that people targeted. Those were the refrigerating uh, elements and, you know, those boating air horns that everybody ostracized because of the CFC use. Um, But those interact with ozone and they actually decrease the ozone layer. What is the ozone layer? So the ozone layer is a layer (laughs) in In the the atmosphere atmosphere, um, that is made up of ozone. So ozone is O3. So oxygen is O2. Ozone has an extra oxygen Mm. atom and the molecule has three oxygens. And how does it do that? Why does it do that? It's just a naturally occurring uh, molecule in the atmosphere. And that provides the earth with UV protection. So most of the UV protection from our atmosphere comes from the ozone layer. And that's why it was a big concern because all of the UV from, so it's basically the earth's natural sunblock. Yeah. And if we have big holes in the ozone layer, then we have big areas where UV radiation is much higher. Okay. So, but ever since they got rid of CFCs, we've noticed that the hole in the ozone layer is decreasing and it's getting almost back to where it was before we used a bunch of CFCs. That's very positive. So that's a good story, but that's why we don't hear about the ozone layer quite as much anymore. I also hear, you know, when I was younger, people talked about global warming and now they talk about climate change. Yeah. So I would argue that that's because global warming as an issue isn't really the overarching concern. So, but the, a couple said the de- earth r- has risen two degrees. Yeah. So it, it's definitely increasing. Global warming is happening. Um, but the consequence of that is climate change more than it is just an increase in global temperature. Okay. So global warming as in like the globe getting warmer. Yeah. That's still people, happening. That's still happening, but it's not a lot of people's lived experience. Right. And so they might not care about it that much because maybe the earth has been warmer in the past or, um, it doesn't affect people's day to day lives, but right. climate change is a bigger domino effect, right? Yeah. So Could you say that in the case of climate change, the reason why it's a concern is because small changes in ocean temperature and small changes in average temperature of the globe can make huge differences in things like jet streams and large scale global weather patterns. And that's where you get things like extreme weather events with massive flooding and drought events and, you know, a change in regional climate. That's a lot harder to overcome. For instance, like if all of a sudden the Midwest became a drought area, we would lose like all of that farming land. And that would be a huge impact of climate change. It may happen. It may not happen. Um, but that's no more Wisconsin cheese. One element. <laughs> no, I would be devastated. No, but really, I mean, but we've had, so this is interesting though, because we've had periods like the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, like yeah. before people were really driving cars all that much. Right. So, but that I think was caused more by over farming well, and soil depletion. Yeah. Well, but also Again, extreme weather. We have to, this is part of the reason why I think the, even the people on the climate change's real side need to be careful about attributing absolutely everything that happens to climate change because we're still dealing with a relatively small sample size. We still don't know about what the long-term impacts are going to be. And, you know, we can predict them. We know that they're probably not good. They're probably not good for humans' ability to habit the planet. Um, but 
we don't know like, okay, that hurricane that was a category five wouldn't have happened if not for climate change. Yeah. Because there, there have always been category hurricanes. five hurricanes. Yeah. They might be increasing in frequency as the ocean temperature increases because ocean temperature contributes to whether or not you have the ability to generate really powerful storms. That's true. Yeah. Um, it also impacts the ability to absorb, you know, water into the atmosphere. So you get more rain and, you know, more precipitation, weather events like that. Mm -hmm. But to say that each and every storm is related to climate change is a little bit overblown. You know, there are natural variations like El Nino and El Nina and those types of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think we just need to trust in the research that we have, but also figure out, you know, before we just jump to every conclusion that it's all about climate change, um, just be a little bit more careful, but in the marketing and over sensationalization aspect. So we need to get better at marketing climate change is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the long-term implications. Sure. So it's possible that we could develop technologies that fix these problems that we're probably creating. Yeah. Like we know, we know that factories and cars put harmful gases in the air. Like that's not rocket science. Right. It's very hard to deny that you're not doing that. <laughs> right. Like if you're dumping trash in your neighbor's yard and then you're like, no, I'm not doing that. Like clearly you are doing that. Right. And that's impacting their life. That's impacting your life too. Right. Mm -hmm. Decreasing your property value and all that also. Um, and, and, and so what really frustrates me about climate change deniers, even though, like you said, they might have some good points. Not good points, but points that can be argued with some basis in, you know, formerly there were high, higher CO2 levels than there are now. Okay. So points that should be taken into consideration and addressed and not just called stupid, right? But like if yes. I'm dumping trash in my neighbor's yard or my yard and like it's contributing to a negative impact or it could be like, it could be lowering our property values. We're not sure, but it's probably true. Like, shouldn't I be a little bit cautious about saying, Hey, maybe I should look at my actions. Yes. Right. So I feel like even if humans aren't contributing to climate change as much as we think we are, shouldn't we be as careful as possible and as responsible as we possibly can to change the things that we can change? Yes. Right. I think the problem, though, is that the doomsday scenario is unlikely to happen in our lifetimes. So it's hard to ask people to sacrifice if it's not going to impact them. I think most people are looking at it as, you know, this is my livelihood or, you know, this is the way that things have been done and if I change my energy consumption today, people in other countries or other uh, demographics aren't going to change theirs. So how much is my little footprint really impacting anything? Well, and that's mean, kind of the, yeah. the defeatist, defeatist argument uh, about it. But yeah. I think that's very real for a lot of people. And I, I get that too. And it, it, is, it is hard to motivate people to action, I think, especially to big action that requires a huge amount of people participating if it's not directly impacting our day-to-day -day lives. You know, on an individual level, there are definitely steps that we can take to reduce our carbon footprint and make changes in how we live on a day-to-day -day basis. Like what are some you know, examples? Well, I mean, that can be, you know, giving up red meat and, you know, trying to cut back on 
um, you know, the consumption of products from cows. Uh, it can be trying to maximize the fuel efficiency of the cars we purchase. Um, it can be trying to offset, you know, through those carbon um, footprint kind of offsets um, as much of the carbon emissions that we um, put out. Like planting trees? or what. Yeah. But, you know, there is a limit to what that will do for us. I think, you know, the onus is on a lot of these multinational and, um, you know, governmental agencies to step up the effort. And I think that's where a lot of the, the calls are for to find better alternatives and, and drive regulations uh, to, you know, start to reduce emissions and come up with technologies that will help in the long run. Yeah. Something that I wish for, and if we're talking about the marketing of climate change and ecological protection, I wish that uh, people who are pro-environmental protection would offer more sympathy and empathy for those who rely on fossil fuel industries to put food on their table. I feel like the rhetoric a lot of times is like, you know, either people who deny climate change are dumb or people who you know, work at coal plants are bad or, you know, like we blame individual people. They're definitely ostracized to a certain extent or stigmatized as being someone who's not pro environment when really they're just trying to provide for their families. They're trying to get by. And a lot of times regulations that are pro environment are seen as anti-manufacturing, anti-industry. Right. And there's definitely a us versus them mentality um, in that space for sure. We've got to find ways to come to the middle and create new ideas. You know, like one, yep. of, one of my favorite sayings ever is don't burn down my house, build me a better one and I'll gladly move in. Right. So instead of just deconstructing and pointing the finger and saying, you're doing things wrong, you're doing things wrong. We have to use our imaginations and our creativity and innovation and technology to say, okay, this is an ideal. Here's a better way to do it. And so that's why I get so excited about technologies that are going to move us forward instead of just pointing fingers, mm-hmm. right? So are, are there any technologies right now that are emerging that you're excited about? Well, I mean, solar has a lot of potential, but we're not at a technological place yet where it's really economically or even technologically viable on a large scale. Doesn't it cost um, a lot to produce solar? It costs a lot of money to produce and it costs a lot of resources to produce. Like fossil fuels? Like fossil fuels. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, I mean, if you think about the manufacturing plants where these panels are being built, they're probably on a grid that's powered by fossil fuels. Like, what is the, you know, net gain from those panels? Like, it's, it's what, definitely what, the right direction to go in. Yeah, but, but what about places where they don't get a lot of sun? What? How do they do solar in those places? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there are certain areas that are better suited for solar than others. There are certain areas that are better suited for wind than others. Um, you know, if you look at other like hydroelectric or, you know, tidal generators and all that kind of stuff in the ocean, there are limitations to those as well. You have to have access to those. The most universal, I guess, alternative energy source would be something like radioactivity and, you know, fission and fusion and all that kind of stuff. But Nobody Again, wants a nuclear nobody power wants plant a nuclear in their backyard, plant in their backyard <laughs> yeah. because we've had, you know, a couple of really high profile issues with those. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if there's a perfect alternative, I don't think we have really identified that yet. But, you know, I think from a technological standpoint, we're getting at least closer. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I mean, because it seems like right now what we're doing globally 
as as a whole is like gambling away our future money that we don't have yet. I think we could say that. Like we're definitely putting ourselves behind the eight ball for sure. Is there anything else you want to say about climate change that you wish people would know about? Um, yeah, I think I would just challenge people on both sides of the equation to better educate themselves on what is actually underneath all of the rhetoric and the sensationalization on both sides and kind of jumping to conclusions or jumping to the extremes just to get their point across. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot's been made of cows and fossil fuels and those types of things, but concrete and cement is a huge emitter of CO2 and you don't ever hear about that being Never. an issue, even though, you know, it's a very significant contributor. I think, you know, ocean temperatures and the ocean sink is starting to be talked about more, but I think that's an area where, you know, there are certainly problems beyond just the sea level rising and Miami not being, you know, it's a city anymore in 50 years or whatever the projections are. I mean, it's still an important set of issues, but it, this is much bigger than just Yeah, there a are a of lot of things underwater. that go into it. You know, there are other issues beyond all of that that people should be taking into consideration as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this, we have to stop talking about this, like showing a lonely, starving polar bear on ice, even though that's very sad. But that could be, that polar bear could be sick for a number of issues, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to talk about the much bigger domino effect that's happening or that could happen because of our direct actions, you know, so that. And these fossil fuel industries are so ingrained in our current economy that, you know, getting away from that is going to take a lot of effort and growing pains and, you know, a shift and compassion for the people who are affected by that. Yeah, these are real people's lives at stake, you know, and, it, and as our severe weather patterns increase and stuff like that, you know, it might cause people to have to migrate or move or become basically ecological refugees in some ways, you know, because they're where they live is no longer habitable. So in our lifetimes, we might not see doomsday coming, but we are already seeing huge shifts in things like weather patterns. There are definitely regional variations. Mass, that... mass extinctions and regional variations. So this, it might not seem like something we should care about on a day-to-day basis, but it does impact our day-to-day lives and it is increasingly impacting our day-to-day lives. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Corey. This has been a great episode. Yeah. I've had fun with it. Fun? Fun. This is your, this is your definition of fun? Well, I mean, getting the word out on some of the misconceptions and trying to call to action to be a little bit more careful about how you portray things and what you do to educate yourself, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it sounds weird to say, hope you have a great day after this episode because it's been pretty intense, but we hope you feel that you've been inspired to take some action after this episode and tell other people about it. That's what I, that's what I'm going to say. Great. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Music by Lemonfest. Logo and marketing by Cambridge Creative Group. Edited and produced by Corey and Mel. See you next time.